Well, good morning and happy new year. It's great to be with you here this morning in the house of the Lord with the people of God. And I got to tell you, yesterday morning in North Carolina, our granddaughter, Joliet Joy Marie Martin, was born. And Mother, mother and child are doing well, and we're heading on a plane Tuesday morning. <laughs> so we can't wait to get out and meet our granddaughter. We've seen pictures. We're not going to show any on the screen because we want to respect our daughter's wishes that she control what goes out on the internet. But I can tell you that Grandma and Grandpa have pictures if you want to come and see That was pretty good. I didn't know that. It's been a good couple of days. It's just, <laughs> I'm hoping I can concentrate this morning so you can, be, you can be praying for us. During the days of Alexander the Great, a story is told of a beggar who was sitting alongside the road as the leader was passing by. And to the amazement of many, the beggar asked Alexander for alms. Now this man was poor, and wretched and had no claim upon the ruler, not even a right to lift his hand to ask for anything. Yet the emperor threw down several golden coins to him. And a courtier who was with the emperor was astonished at his generosity and said, Sir, copper coins would adequately meet a beggar's need. Why give him gold? Alexander responded in royal fashion, Copper coins would suit the beggar's needs, but gold coins suit Alexander's giving. The one who is in power, who has control over the resources, the one who is free to give them as he wishes. Well, in our passage this morning, we're going to see that the generosity of a wicked emperor is no match for the generosity of a great and almighty God. Through the use of the colorful parable, we see that the math of heaven is very different from the math of earth. Earthly rewards are dependent on human ideas of merit, time, entitlement, while the rewards of heaven are rooted in the grace and mercy of a good and giving God, who sees all things from beginning to end and who delights in displaying his generous nature. Those who want to be first in this life, seeking personal gain and glory, will be last in the life to come. While those who seek first the kingdom of God, with no concern for personal recognition, are those that will be first in the kingdom of heaven. And while there are rewards in following Jesus, the ultimate reward is Jesus himself. He is the gateway to heaven. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the first and the last. He is our all in all. And so as we begin a new year, and as we continue in our studies in the gospel according to Matthew, the passage that we will look at this morning is a good reminder of our need for the mercy and kindness of our God. And so as we prepare to enter in a study of God's word, I invite you if we're able to stand as I read God's word, and our passage today is taken from Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16. And the beautiful and truthful and inerrant word of God says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. 
After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went out. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you too go into the vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they were to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? You begrudge my generosity, so the last will be first, and the first last. This is the word of the Lord, given for our instruction this morning, that we might gain a deeper insight into the generosity of our God and his great heart for his people. Please be seated. And let us pray. Father, indeed, we turn to you and we recognize with even just a moment's reflection what a good and kind and gracious God you are. And all that we have comes from you. And so would you be our teacher this morning and by your spirit would you give us understanding and insight into what you have given us in your word that we might see in a greater way the glory and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ as we commit ourselves to you and as we pray in his precious name. Amen. I'd like to take a moment at this time to say good morning to those of you that are joining us online. Thank you for taking the time to Sit down wherever you might be and join us as we worship God together, as we study the word of God together. Indeed, I encourage you wherever you might be now to open your copy of God's word. Turn to chapter 20 of the gospel according to Matthew and let's study the word of God together. Now it's been a few weeks since we were last in Matthew. So let's review a little bit about what was happening at that juncture in the ministry of Jesus before we took our break to celebrate the Christmas season. Beginning back in chapter 19, verse 1, after finishing up his ministry in Galilee, we saw that Jesus and his disciples left Galilee to begin their trek back to Jerusalem. We saw that they have crossed over the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the other side of the River Jordan, in the land that is known as Jordan today. And they're on their way to Jerusalem, but they decide that they do not want to pass through Samaria. They're in Galilee in the north, Judea is in the south, and in between the two is Samaria, and they didn't want to cross through Samaria, which was a common attitude and practice of the people of that day. So they're taking the circuitous route, crossing over the river, going down, they'll get to about Jericho, just above the North Sea, uh, the Dead Sea, and they'll cross back over into the land of Judea. And from there, Jesus will continue on to Jerusalem, where he will bring to completion his work of redemption. And we've seen that along the way, they have met several different groups. 
First, they were met by a group of the Pharisees who had questions about God, about God's view of marriage, divorce, and the possibility of remarriage. And we saw that Jesus gave a high and holy view of marriage, limiting divorce, wanting to show that God's intentions for men and for women and for marriage is good and for the benefit of God's people. And as part of that answer, he said, it is even part of his good plan that some have a lifetime of singleness. And then a group of parents want to bring their children to Jesus to have Jesus bless them, but the disciples don't want the children to come because they think Jesus should focus on the important people, not these children, and children uses them. Jesus uses these children as an example of what faith is like, this full trust in a heavenly Father who is good, who gives life and sustenance, and it is that childlike faith that will save us and bring us into the kingdom of heaven. Then we saw the rich young ruler who came and he said, Master, what is the one thing that I must do? He was self-righteous. He wanted to think, what are those laws that I need to keep, those things that I need to practice? I feel like I'm doing it all. What's that one thing that I must do? And Jesus very wisely turns it on him and gives him the one thing he must do. Give it all up and trust in the Father for all things. And We see that he's not willing to do that one thing, because it wasn't the one thing that he wanted to do. He wanted salvation on his own terms. He wanted to know that one thing, and Jesus gave him that one thing, and he wouldn't do it. And so he walked away sad and lost. But listening into that conversation would have been Peter, who wants to clarify his own position before God, and, and says, well, Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. What will our reward be? Kind of hinting that he thinks his reward is going to be great. After all, look at all that they've done for the Lord. And Jesus says, well, there are rewards in in following me, but they're they're handed out by God as he desires. So don't seek to be first, Peter. Seek to be those who seek me first. Therefore, being last in this world, you will have a reward that allows you to be first in the kingdom of heaven. Put God first and leave the reward giving to God. And Jesus ends this section at the end of chapter 19, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And that brings us to our first major point this morning, which is the master's call, go to the harvest. The master's call, go to the harvest. Now, we have an unfortunate chapter division here because it is put right in the middle of a larger section of scripture that belongs together. We know that, of course, the chapter divisions, the verse divisions were given later on after God had given us his word. And most of the time, they're very, very helpful for us to find our way around the scriptures. We can give a chapter number and we can give a verse number and we know we need to go. But these chapter divisions and even verse divisions are not inspired of God. And sometimes they fall in the wrong place. This is the wrong place. You see, this section started in chapter 19, verse 16 and goes all the way to chapter 20, verse 16. And so sometimes you'll find it helpful as you read through the scriptures, if you can, just ignore the chapter divisions and just read it as if it was just written in a letter, paragraph upon paragraph. And oftentimes you'll see sections that fit together. And this is a section that we have here. This is a continuation of what Jesus has been doing from the middle of chapter 19 onward. But in any case, we begin. Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is like... And I stop there because this is an expression that Jesus has used many times in the gospel according to Matthew. He likes to use this expression to explain the nature of the kingdom 
over which and in which he is king, that he has come to bring about in his coming to earth, that he will consummate in its fullness when he returns to earth. And so we've seen several examples of this already. The kingdom of heaven is like. Well, in this case, the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. We have a picture here of God. After all, God is the one that owns the land and owns the fields. He owns the house. He owns the workers. He has control over all things. And so we have a parable here of how God deals with and reacts towards those he has created. Now, just as a side note, just so we understand a little bit of the background that's going on, in, in that time in the ancient Near East, the, the harvest for grapes was in September. That may or may not be a time indicator here. It just shows that Jesus is talking about things that are real. He, he deals with real events in life that help us to connect with what Jesus is saying. So this, this grape harvest would have happened in September. But let's consider, as before we really get into the text, the condition of the day laborer. The condition of the day laborer. This was a very common practice in the ancient world. A man would get up very early, before sunlight, go and gather at a known point in the marketplace and look for someone to come and hire him. His status in society was quite low, but his importance in the local economy was great. And we've had a picture to see this wherever we've gone, where that is still a practice in many parts of the world and certainly was when we were in the Arab Middle East. There were places in town where you, would, you could go. You knew that if you had a short project, a small project, that's where you would go to hire day laborers. And they would come and gather around your vehicle and they're all clamoring because they know they have to live off what they earn that day. And you have to learn to get some discernment and have a local person that can help you figure out which one of these are good workers and which one are not. And so I want you to have that in your mind, the day worker who would just clamor, he's desperate for work. And his wage, as we've seen in previous texts, but as remind us here, is that it was a denarius. That was the daily wage. And when we looked at forgiveness, we saw that the daily wage in comparison to how much we've sinned against God is astronomical in comparison to the sins that people have committed against us. We saw that back in Matthew chapter 18. But the worker had to be paid at the end of each day. The law required it. The worker needed to be paid because whatever he earned at the end of the day, he would immediately take and go and buy for his family. And so every day became a struggle. It was a difficult lot in life for the day worker. He didn't have job security. All he had was today, going and earning what he could earn in the market that day. He had no union pension. He had no social welfare, no workers' rights to help him out. Every day was a fight and struggle for survival. For he knew that he needed that day to work. And so that's part of the background of what's going on here in this parable. And the workday would be managed, if you will, by the rhythm of the sun. And so we see things in our text, and I'm just going to jump over different things in the text. It says the master went out early. He went out in the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, the eleventh hour. Now, if we understand that approximately 6 a.m. was the starting point of the day, and they worked approximately 12 hours because that was the amount of light that they had to work, the first hour of the day would be 6 a.m. The third hour would be 9 a.m. The 11th hour, and you could do the math as you work through. The ninth hour would be noon, the 11th hour would be 5 p.m., and generally work would wrap up around 6 o'clock. They didn't wear watches in those days. It was approximate as they went according to the rhythm of the day, the rhythm of the sunset. 
But it gives us some insight then when in a different context, but Jesus affirms the length of the workday for in the gospel according to John, he says, are there not 12 hours in the day? Now, Jesus is not mathematically challenged here. He knows that there are 24 hours in a day. He's the one that upholds all things by the power of his word. He's just stating a fact that they knew in that day that you just had the daylight hours to work. And these day workers had just the daylight hours to earn what they would need to make it through the day to provide for their family. So with all of that kind of as background information and color to help us understand what is going on, we can get to verse 2, which gives us some more background information. And agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And given the poor economic conditions of the day, there would be no difficulty in finding workers. And so the price is agreed to, and off they go to work. And then in the background, from the condition of the day laborers, we see the compassion of the master. Now, it's not obvious here, but stay with me here as we investigate what would happen in the culture there. Verse 3 says, And going out about the third hour, he, standing, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. This is about 9 a.m. now. The master finds some people idling in the workplace, the marketplace. Perhaps they got there too late to be part of the first shift, if you will. Perhaps it's not so much that they were lazy. They were just circumstances of life. And the master says he will pay them whatever is right. And just by that expression, we begin to get more of a hint of the nature of this master, that he's a righteous man. He will do what is right. He will do what is generous. And it continues on as we see later on. And going out about the sixth hour and about the ninth hour, he did the same thing. Now, it could be that the harvest was just really big and that need was urgent. There might have been some work to do. After all, they're sent into the fields to work. But there's something else here, I think, at play. Because having seen it with my own eyes, you know, how things would happen in, in modern-day Middle East, you didn't go out and hire somebody at 4 in the afternoon. Not when the work was going to be done in a couple days. It was not a good business decision. And many commentators pointed that out. They said, well, this is not actually very wise economically. But it shows a lot of kindness on the part of the master. And especially in light of how the master treats each of the workers, I think we gain some understanding into what kind of master, what kind of uh, character he has. He's showing kindness to these men all throughout the day, even if it might potentially hurt him financially. So he goes out to the next hour and he asks the question, why are you still here? Verse 6 says, in about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? Now, there is a stinger to this question. They said to him, because no one hired us. But the dynamics of the marketplace would be that you, if you had an important job to do and you went to the marketplace in the morning, you wanted to hire the best workers for the day. And so there's a selection process going on all throughout the day. And if they're still standing there at this time, it might be because of some things on their part. Maybe they didn't show up in time. Maybe they just waited till midday to wander into the marketplace. Maybe they had a reputation that they were not reliable workers. But the master hires them. He says, go. Go into the fields. And so all throughout the day, the master is actively out seeking those who need work. He's actively out showing kindness to those who are in very difficult, desperate situations. And if this master represents the Lord, which I think Jesus very clearly wants us to see when he says the kingdom of heaven is like, and he talks about the master, then we have an image 
of the Lord who is continually out calling people, beckoning people, challenging people to come and hear the gospel. To come because the night is drawing near. Not knowing how much time is left. Come while you still have time. We don't know the timing that God has. Whether we're still in the first hour, the third hour, the eleventh hour. But the master is out showing his kindness to those he calls. Whether the first hour or the eleventh hour. Come in. Now you have to stay with me here. Because I think the punchline is what will show that this is to show his kindness, not necessarily the equity of human economics. So after seeing the master's call, go to the harvest. Are you listening? Is the master, today is the day of salvation. We're still in the time of the harvest between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. You hear the master calling, come and follow me. We get to our next major point, which says the master's compensation. The master's compensation. Receive your reward. In her hymn, Work for the Night is Coming, Angie Coghill captures well the meaning of this parable. Throughout the parable, she, uh, throughout the hymn, she's telling the story that the master continues to call and says, Now is the time to work. Keep working because the night is coming. And the last stanza says, work for the night is coming under the sunset skies. While their bright tints are glowing, work for the daylight flies. Work till the last beam fadeth, fadeth to shine no more. Work while the night is darkening, when man's work is o'er. In this parable, the workday is coming to an end. There's the idea of eschatological judgment. There is a day coming when the work will be done. Darkness will come. Judgment will come. Are you ready? In the meantime, we work. And to show that this master is this generous and kind and benevolent and good master, we see the contrary procedure right from the beginning. Verse 8 says, And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last, up to the first. The master here does what is not expected. The last one's hired are the first ones paid. That was not usually how it was done. It was usually those who were hired first, who at the end of the day were paid first, so that everyone would see, look at they've been paid in full. And then because there would generally be a reduction in salary throughout the day, there would be fewer and fewer witnesses to how much these day workers were actually being paid. So while all attention now is is on the foreman, is on the masters, on how is he going to treat these last ones, which is contrary to how it was done, it's then that we see the compassionate payment. The compassionate payment, verse 9. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. They were hired late, late in the day, in the eleventh hour, but they're paid as if they had worked the whole day. This was not required, and no sane businessman in that day would have paid accordingly. He'd only worked one hour, he only gets one-twelfth of the daily wage. It's not good business, but this is good compassion. This is good kindness in action. The same thing is repeated at the third hour, for those that came at the third hour, at the sixth hour, at the ninth hour. And by deduction, as we read, we say they were paid the same amount. They're all paid the full daily wage, though they had only uh, worked just a part of it. It was not based on their length of service. Now think of the drama that's going on here. You're a desperate day worker. And you know that every day is a battle. 
and you get up early in the morning and you come to the marketplace and you get hired and you work all day and you know what it is to work all day under hot, difficult conditions. And then you see this taking place. Should have been paid first. You're being paid last as you're watching it all unfold. The last are paid and then the second to last and then the third to last. And all along the time, you've been watching what is taking place. You can almost imagine in their minds, they're calculating, what is my bonus going to be? If these ones are in the first hour, get so much, well then. And the calculators are going in their minds. They're already making plans, perhaps, of what they're going to do with the extra and how they're going to spend what they think they're entitled to. And so imagine their shock. When in verse 10, now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each one also received a denarius. And moving then from the compassionate payment of the master, we see the complaining protest of the workers. They thought they would get more, but they end up being paid the same as all the others, a denarius for the day. You know what? It didn't seem fair to them. They should get more. And so we're told that they grumbled. Verse 11, on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. What is their problem? Well, part of their problem is that they're still thinking on a merely human level about how rewards are given. Now, in human terms, as I said in my introduction, rewards are based on effort, achievement, merit, longevity, connection. But God's not ruled by human standards. His rewards are based on his grace, on his mercy, on his generosity, on his kindness. He rules by grace, not by the grid of man. And so they grumbled at the master of the house. This is a dangerous word. The word gagnizo, it means to grumble bitterly or in a bad-tempered way. Now think about what it means to grumble against the Lord. To grumble against the Lord is to demonstrate a lack of trust in the Lord. To grumble against the Lord is an accusation against the Lord. You've done wrong, Lord. I deserve more. When I was teaching in the Middle East with the students I had there, students in general, but certainly the students that I had, because this is very much an Arab culture, they complain about everything. So the students would complain about the workload. They'd complain about the grades. They'd complain about how much time they'd have. They'd complain about this and that and the other thing. And I'd say, you know what? We're going to go on a field trip. We're going to get on a bus, and we're going to go to the southern part of Jordan, which is known as the wilderness. And we're going to bring some shovels, and we're going to start digging. And we're going to start digging down. And you know what we're going to come across? We're going to come across the bones of the Israelites that God buried in the desert because they were perpetual complainers. dangerous to grumble against God. How can we say, God, you didn't do that right. God, you made a bad decision here. God, these circumstances aren't the way they should be. They thought they deserved more. Going back to verse 10, now when those who came first, they thought they would receive more, but each of them only received, received a denarius. They thought they would receive more. The word here. Nomidzo means to presume or to assume. One, one dictionary 
defines it this way, to regard something as presumably true, but without particular certainty. They had presumed and assumed upon the mercy and generosity of the master. They thought they deserved more from God. And as we stand here at the beginning of 2024, we do a heart check. Do we ever think that we deserve more from God? That he should have done better by us? That he should have given us more? More of this and more of that and less of this and less of the other? It's a dangerous thing to presume upon the grace of God. God's not obligated to act according to our standards because thankfully his standards are far better and far higher and ultimate justice is found in him. But listen to their complaint. These last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Notice how they put it. You made them equal to us. They didn't turn it around and say you made us equal to them. They really think that they're in a good spot here before the Lord, that they, they have reason to complain. We bore the heat. We had the difficulty. We had the dust. We had the longevity. We didn't get the coffee break. We didn't sit around all day. We worked. We deserve more. We served more. So who would be listening in that would probably be hit by this? Well, I think first of all, Peter who had just asked the question, that's why the chapter division gets in the way, who just asked the question, look, Lord, look all that we did. We gave it all up. What will our reward be? Not these Johnny-come-latelys. We need to beware of presuming upon the grace of God. His math is different than ours. And so after the complaining protest, Jesus gives the correcting principle. The correcting principle. Verse 13. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Now notice a couple of things. They get their money and they're angry and they don't address the master with any type of respect. They just start grumbling. But how does the master respond, friend? You see the kindness of the master, the character of the master, the compassion of the master. Friend. They complained. He responds with gentleness. He doesn't address the whole group. He addresses one of them, perhaps, who is representing the whole group. Often Peter would come and speak, but we know it was for all the disciples. And he addresses Peter. Perhaps here it's a similar thing. He replies to them. But notice the most important thing here is that he says God is never unjust. He said, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. It's not possible that there be any unrighteousness in God. It's not possible that there be unfairness in God or injustice in God. That those standards, human standards don't apply to him. He sets the standards. He's the one who sees the beginning from the end, who knows all things, who does all things well. He sets the standard for justice and fairness. He's never unjust, but he's not obligated by our understandings of accounting and how to distribute the gifts that he wants to give. So he said, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree to the principle, but did you not agree to what I've given you? So if we look at it, you agreed, I agreed, says the master. I kept my word, you keep yours. There's no injustice here. 
is just generosity on the part of the master. All part of his free grace, his kindness, his goodness. And so he says, take what belongs to you and go. Now remember who these players are. Obviously it's a parable, but it's rooted in something cultural. This is a group of day workers. They're hired as day workers. They didn't have inherent rights. They didn't have any room for complaining. So there is no injustice here. No one had lost anything. No one had been harmed. Yet they're discontented. They're thinking merely in human terms. I have my rights. Do you know what I've done? Do you know who I am? This is not fair. And then the master slaps down hard on the pride of man. He says, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to, to do what I choose with what belongs to me? The master says, I'm the owner. This is all mine. It's all in my hands. I can choose to give it to whoever I want and to use it however I want. And if I choose to give to the last what I've given to the first, what's that to you? I gave you what I promised. I'm the master. This is my vineyard. You work for me. We need to be careful not to presume upon the grace of God. But often we do. As Paul is writing to the church in Rome and he's talking about just the sovereignty of God as God governs his universe. He says, if you, do, if you say this and this, people are going to say, but God, that's not fair. And so Paul quotes God as he's speaking to Moses and as God speaks to us. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion so then it depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. We're sometimes frustrated to let God be God. But at the end of the day, we're glad God is God. Because he alone can handle the burden and the responsibility of being God. And so he asks a question. Jesus asked him, this is from the mouth of the master. Why do you protest my generosity? Verse 15. Or do you begrudge my generosity? Are you angry with me because I'm kind? And what's interesting is the word that is translated, in, as I have it here on the screen, the English Standard Version, begrudge, actually contains the word for I. So you could translate it as, or do you have the evil eye of jealousy? It's as if Jesus is saying, do you have stink eye because I bless another? Are you green with envy because I bless another and show kindness and generosity? And so he's contrasting the image of the master with the image of one who is stingy, tight-fisted in rewarding others, maybe even jealous over the rewards that others have received. Friends, I hope that as we, we walk with the Lord, knowing that we receive in Christ far more than we'll ever deserve, that all we do is just rejoice with those who are blessed by God. We just enter into their joy. Say, oh, I'm so glad God blessed you in that way. And not think about, well, if so-and-so got this, then I should get this. The point is that we rejoice with those to whom God is generous because those to whom God is generous didn't deserve it. Everything God gives is given by grace, by mercy, by kindness. The gifts point to the goodness of the giver, not to the supposed merit of the recipient. It's showing us who is good. Remember the rich young ruler came and said, what is good? Jesus says, 
Why do you ask what is good? There's only one that is good. And it's in this larger context, he shows us who is good. It's the master. It is God who is good. As opposed to those who are greedy and stingy. I think R.C. Sproul captures it right when he says this parable is not about grapes. It's about grace. But Jesus concludes this parable by saying, so the last will be first and the first last. He reverses the order of what he said in 1930, but the meaning is the same. God's view of math is not the same as ours. Those who are last will be as the first, and, and that should cause us to rejoice. Because if salvation, which I think is at play here, is a gift from God, it's always a gift from God. Peter asked about rewards. Jesus said, the reward is me. The reward is being in God's presence, being with him forever. And the Lord is always fair. But he's never unjust. But aren't we glad that he's one more thing? He's generous. He is generous to his children. He's gracious to his children. He's loving and kind to his children. All that we have, we have in Christ. All that we have in salvation is a gift from God from beginning to end, by grace, through faith. It's never a result of what we do, but a result of God's gracious actions towards those he's pleased to give it. If we could demand grace, if we could require mercy, if we could expect reward, then we put God as our debtor. But to whom will God ever be a debtor? He's not obligated to be anything other than what he is, which is God. All that we have, we receive as those who do not deserve if we're in Christ. This parable is a nice illustration of the wonderful grace of God and that the blessing of salvation is given to all, whether received early in life or late. And be careful about ever letting the words cross your tongue, saying that God does something is unfair, something that God does unfair. Be careful about demanding justice from God. Nobody gets injustice from God. And in the final judgment, many will get justice from God and find themselves in hell forever. But there is also a multitude that no one can count who will receive mercy from God and be in his presence forever. God is never unjust. He's always just. And to his children, he is also merciful. However we might understand whom is being referred to in this parable, is Jesus contrasting the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews who had received from over centuries the, the word and the gospel, and now these Johnny-come-lately Gentiles are being grafted in. The result is the same. All come equally in Christ. Some say it's a comparison of the Pharisees who thought that they were the guardians of the law and that these ones that came late are these tax collectors, these sinners who come to Christ because he calls them to faith and repentance. Some say it's a comparison between the rich young ruler who thought he would be first but will be last and Peter who wanted to be first but was reminded that he needed to be last. Some say it's a comparison of those who come to Christ in an early age and live faithfully for him all their lives and those who in the 11th hour of life cling to the grace of God. I think all of these are, are possible. I don't think we need to tie up any more time because I think they all point to the same thing. Everything in the Christian life is all by God's grace. And therefore, do not presume upon the grace of God. 
So how do, we, how do we apply that to ourselves as Christians? Well, there are some Christians who have the benefit of coming to faith in Christ at a young age, maybe growing up in a godly family. There are others who have come to faith and they're living in a country where they're persecuted and maybe they spend more time in prison than not and they eventually give their lives for Christ. They may serve him for a long time. But they're not to grumble about maybe those who just got in at the 11th hour. God is God. He's gracious. He's sovereign. And if you've tasted that the Lord is merciful and generous, rejoice. Don't compare yourselves with others. Whether you have the privilege of being saved at a young age and walking with the Lord a long time, or if you have just barely come in at the 11th hour on your deathbed, both result in eternal life with God. The payment is the same, and that's because the gospel is the same to all who receive it. The reward is the Lord, who is generous and kind. No one deserves a thing from the Lord, except that he be holy, except that he be just. And aren't we glad that he's merciful? Salvation can never be earned. This is the generosity of the Father. He does often reward those who serve him, but they cannot demand anything from God. There is no merit theology in the Christian life. It is God alone who gives us all things from beginning to end, so that the end, as we're in his presence, we give it all back to him anyway, recognizing that this was all empowered by you. So as we stand at the beginning of 2024, are you grateful for what you've received from the Lord? Or do you still need to root out some things in your heart where you secretly harbor thought that you deserve more than what you've received? If we recognize that we have the privilege of being in Christ, then that gratitude should overflow because God will take care of his own. Do you rejoice when others are blessed by the Lord? Or do you find it hard to enter into their joy because secretly you're thinking, I should have got some of that? You know, God is generous, but he doesn't treat everyone exactly the same way. We not, we, no two of us have the same life experiences, the same talents, the same abilities, the same interactions with the Lord. But one thing we can know is God is always gracious and generous and merciful with his children. And the more that we grow in our faith, as the Holy Spirit gets a hold of our lives and transforms us more and more into the image of Christ, empowers us to just want to serve the Lord because he's the Lord. We love him because he first loved us. We serve him because we have the privilege of serving him. Oftentimes in our human relationships, we serve others just because it's a joy to serve them because we love them. How much more the Father? Let us not serve to get from the Lord. Let's serve because he's already given us so much. And let that joyful exuberance, if you will, overflow from our lives, that we would just be people that are joyful and have that attitude of gratitude all throughout life. Daniel Doriani says, the greater danger is that we will do what God asks and then focus on the service rendered than the Lord to whom we render it. I think it's well said. Focus on the one you are serving, not on the service itself. Because we're in a living relationship with the living God who says, walk with me and I'll lead you. And we can just serve him because we're with him and serving him. There's a lot for us to digest from this passage. But I hope that we will take to heart this year 
Let it be a year that we grow in gratitude. Let it be a year that we grow in contentment in the Lord. Let it be a year that we grow in just recognizing that God is a generous giver. And wherever we see him giving, let's enter into that joy and rejoice that God is so good and gracious. And walk with one another and encourage one another to just keep seeking him and loving him because he's worth seeking and he's worth loving. Now in our next passage in Matthew, which is going to be not next week. God shows us what he did to make grace so free. If you want to go ahead and read ahead, look at the next couple of verses in Matthew chapter 20. It tells us what God did so that in Christ he could be so gracious. And look at what Christ did who goes and suffers and dies. And if we can see all that Christ did so that we could receive whatever we receive from the Lord, should we not have hearts that just receive with gratitude? But until that time, when we get to it, let's just remember that the work of human merits are the equivalent of copper coins. But the blessings of God are the equivalent of golden coins because they're worthy of the one who gives the gift. What are some, passage, what are some lessons we can take away as we close up today? Well, because today is the time of the harvest. Today is the day that the king is still going out and calling, and the master is saying, come and come. While there is still time, cry out to the Lord to show his mercy to you. And if you know someone that is still outside of that ark of safety, go to them and say, today is the day. While you can, hear and listen and repent and come and believe. Secondly, because salvation is a free gift of God, if you are in Christ, rejoice for the infinite love and grace you have received. You know, it's in common, at least uh, in, in certain parts of our culture, we say, how are you doing? You say, better than I deserve. You know, it is only the Christian that can truly say that. Better than I deserve. And a million billion years from now, as we're all around the throne of God, and you ask me how I'm doing, it's going to be the same. Better than I deserve. Because of Christ. But if you're in Christ today, and with the time that you have, and all of us do not know the, how many days we have left. Let, us, let him find us working hard, diligently, and joyfully in his service for as long as you have breath. There is no greater privilege than to be a servant of the living God. And so use your life to just serve him diligently, joyfully, for as long as you have breath. And because God is in control... Do not complain when he is generous to others, but rather enter into that joy and celebrate with them. Don't be misled by a pernicious merit theology. Well, we did this and we did that. Be gone, such thinking in 2024. Let's be just thinking about all that God has done for us in Christ and let us rejoice. Let us pray. Father, as we look at this parable and we see a master who is so concerned about the welfare that people come. And I thank you that you are a God that pursued us and brought us, and we thank you for the enormous blessing we have in Christ. And Father, we pray that you would burden our hearts over the next few weeks for those that do not yet know Christ, that we would go to them and say, yes, brother, yes, sister, come while there is time. There is still this lavish reward whether you come in the first hour or in the 11th hour, salvation is freely available. Come and receive. And then help us, Father, as we are in Christ to recognize that with each day we have a gift and we have an opportunity to serve you. 
and may we use it. So that at the end of each day, as our heads touch the pillow, we can say, I walked with the living God today. I know more about his word. I know more about his character. I've seen more about his work. I have more things to rejoice over. Oh, Father, may it be that you would grow in us this ongoing passion to see you at work in our lives. Thank you for your lavish forgiveness. Thank you for your lavish love. Thank you for this great reward that is ours in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.